tons to get into. Now, last week, I, I don't, nah, I didn't put it on the board, so I'm just going to talk you through it. Um, we looked at the historical layout of how Matthew kind of unfolds. What we know is synoptically, uh, we have four Gospels. Each of the four Gospels present similar uh, timeline, storyline, um, coverage of information about Jesus' life and ministry, correct? Okay, so, but each author of each of the Gospels has their own design purpose, a specific reason for writing, yes? Okay, so we have done the book of Matthew in the past. Does anybody remember what Matthew's purpose was for writing? What was he trying to convey to us or teach us about who Jesus was? Matthew. I want you to go back to Matthew. It's scratching the brain. I'm opening up the cobwebs here. <laughs> that Jesus is the king. He is the promised king of Israel. And so as you looked at, at Matthew, what we found us after we finished doing that uh, observation was it breaks down into uh, segment divisions. It's really not a matter of a paragraph, one paragraph or one chapter rather that covers a subject and then moves to the next at all. It's more like, and, and part of the reason it took us a while to figure it out was because sometimes similar stories, miracles, works, activities of his ministry life, seems like, you know, we'd be in one area and he'd be talking about all these different things, casting out demons and healing people and, you know, all these things. And then he'd move to, we'd move on a little bit further. And, and again, it was more of the same thing, but it just felt like it was jumbled up and like we kept repeating things until suddenly the light came on. And this is where inductive Bible study is so fantastic. And that is what we figured out was, oh, in this segment, he's teaching this about how Jesus is the king. And then you move to the next segment, which was maybe two chapters, three chapters, four chapters, depending. Each division had its own little pace. It was two to three chapters generally. But you'd move on to the next three, and they would address he is the king, but they'd say he is the king from this perspective, how he fulfilled this quality, right? And so that's how it progressed through. So that was cool in that one. Now, what about John? We've also done the Gospel of John. Does anybody remember what John's purpose for writing was? The Son of the Living God. Therefore, the emphasis is on that he is what? Deity come in flesh, that he is God's son, that he is himself God. And how did John kind of portray that? What was, what was John's major emphasis on about the ministry of Jesus? Do you remember? I know it's hard, but think about what, ha what happened. The very first thing he did was turn water to wine, right? And then progressively through what was going on, he kept performing miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle until finally there was the grand finale and he raises Lazarus from the dead and then he himself, what, raises from the dead. So it was a, if you've forgotten this, I'm helping you to remember. It's a, prog I want you to remember these, you know, to, sometimes they say about precept teachers that they shouldn't go back and try to cover old stuff because you got too much to handle with what you're already handling. But to me, if we can keep grabbing back into the things that we've already done and tie them in and refresh, then we're going to begin to remember them. But if we don't, if you, if you finish it and you drop it and you never talk about it again, 
never go back to Hebrews, never go back to Revelation, never go back to whatever you've studied, then you do kind of lose that information and yet you forget it. But bringing it in and making it relevant in whatever we're studying and see how it makes, how one thing um, can help enhance your understanding of what you're in right now, that's to me really super important. It's almost, again, it's another quality of setting context. We have a historical context for this book. We have a timeline context for this book. We have an author's purpose that's contextual to this book. We have major subjects in this book that, are, that have influence and understanding context, right? So that, for instance, where we're at right now, we're going to look at a timeline in a second and why that's so significant. It helps you understand where, you've, where the author has brought you to, where you are right now, and where you're headed, and it, it makes what you're looking at right now make better sense. You get a fuller impact or, or understanding kind of of what he's telling. What is he telling us all these things about for right now in this book, right? We want to kind of figure that out. So John was about the, the miracles and how the miracles portrayed Jesus as being uh, God come in flesh. He was uh, uh, the son of God, as Rebecca said. So what we see then in, in uh, the gospel of John in chapter 3 was where Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and said, we know, Lord, we know, uh, Rabbi, that you could not do these things, least God be with you. Unless God's power was in your work, in your in your grasp, in your ability of reach. You could not do the things that you do. So the miracles were the evidence that he was God, right? So that was John. So now we have Matthew and we have John. Now we're in Luke. The only one we haven't done yet is Mark. We'll have to do that one next because <laughs> I haven't done it yet either. I was talking with Amy and uh, Laurie Skipton, for those of you who know both of them, at this cookie baking that I did on, on Saturday at Amy's. We had so much fun. And all we did was talk about Jesus all day long. <laughs> it was the best time. Um, but, you know, we, as you are studying God's word and you are pulling these truths in, the relevance of what you're learning that's, that's a little, in your homework time, it can fe feel rigid, right? It's like, okay, make this list, mark that word, look up this cross-reference, go get a word study done on this or that. And a lot of it is it's all these little pieces of get these things done, but trying to pull them then together to see how they, how they make sense in the book is what we're about in our discussion time. Um, I had one student uh, recently who said, Sometimes it doesn't seem like you even cover the homework. <laughs> and I because I don't because you know why? They are used to a homework assignment where you read the question and fill in the blank. You read the question, you fill in the blank. And if you're used to that kind of study, that is not what precept is at all. What we count on in precept is that you have all done your homework. So now what I can do is pull you along in a conversation or a flow of thought that lays things out in a way that kind of, that kind of um, ties it all up in a nice pretty bow so that you all of a sudden you see where we're at and where we're headed, okay? So that's why sometimes I don't exactly follow, exactly, that's really an understatement, <laughs> I don't follow <laughs> exactly what you've always done in your homework, but have you noticed you generally can follow me? Because all that you've looked at is still bouncing in your head. Hopefully, if not, I can say, look on page 
whatever, and I will do that for you occasionally. I'm saying a lot of this for Lisa's benefit, but also for a review for all of you, because some of you have been with me a long time. And I think that some, yeah, Janice is going, yes. <laughs> but she's still here, so she loves it, right? But if you, if you, um, you can sometimes, no matter what study you're doing, you can get into a rut. And pretty soon it is more like a read the question and fill it, and, you know, do the assigned work, but you're not analyzing it. And what I want you to do is analyze. I want you to get to a place of analytical observation. But to get to analytical, you must do the, the objective observations first. That's what you're doing at home, objective observation. It's fact gathering. That's why you ask as you're looking at the text, who, what, why, when, where, how, kinds of questions. Who is he? Why is he? Where was he? When was he? What was he doing? And then the, well, you move to the next page, and you ask the same questions about the same verse, but about from a different perspective, right? So your work sometimes seems redundant, sometimes it feels very rigid, but, but you are doing the hard work on your own that prepares you to come into this environment and have this kind of a discussion where you can start to make sense of, of it, I hope. Well, maybe not always, but I do try to make sense of it all. <laughs> okay, so now we know Matthew and we know Luke kind of those two perspectives. So what about, I mean, Matthew and John, what about Luke? This is the book we're, we're tackling right now. What are we seeing about this um, perspective of who Jesus is? What is it that the author keeps uh, seeming to emphasize? That he is the son of man. Now, what does that mean exactly, son of man? That he is fully human. Actually, he is a human being with flesh and blood and skin, right? Now, written by a man whose name is Luke. Now, what do we know about Luke? He's a physician. And in many regards, the fact that he's writing about the fleshly quality of Jesus being man kind of ties together nicely. But, but, but beyond the fact that he is Luke the physician, we don't really get into medical so much, although occasionally, I, from what I understand, when we get into um, the, uh, the passion part of, of this particular uh, text at the end, um, that there'll be more medical kinds of concepts that are going to be presented in there. But right now, we're not seeing so much of that. Right now, what we are seeing literally is an unveiling of uh, of events that have been taking place in his ministry, right? What can you tell me about um, that you remember from last week? And I know this is a little tougher question. What do you remember about last week in the timeline? What do we know about how this book is now unfolding? The, okay, the first thing is chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. He tells us very clearly right at the beginning, and I do love that about Luke, that's one of the few books that does this, but he actually says, this is what I'm doing, and this is why I'm writing. And one of the things he says is, I'm going to give you um, uh, a record of in consecutive order. Let's go back and read that together just for, for fun. Luke 1, verses 1 to 4. Um, Somebody got that ready? How about, how about you, Terry? Would you read those one through four for us?
Wow. So that you may know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. Now, what things that they have been taught? What, what was, what's the subject matter? What's the major subject of the book? Jesus. So it's about the things that you've been taught about Jesus, about who he is, why he is, where he is, when he, he is, all those who, what, why, when, where, how questions. So, and he's giving it to them in a consecutive order. Now, what does that mean, consecutive order? Not exactly chronological, Susan, but somewhat chronological. Somewhat. You don't want to hold it totally to the fire on that because there's a couple of places we saw, for instance, when we saw the baptism, remember? And then it talked about who? Tell me what you remember, Kathleen. Right. In this record, John the Baptist is made mention of, and it, they, they conclude that he then died, and then follow it with a record of Jesus' baptism. Now, why do we know that is not chronologically correct? Why do we know that? What do we know about John the Baptist in relationship to Jesus' baptism? Yeah, John was present when Jesus was baptized. Remember the famous statement in the Gospel of John where the disciples are coming by and, and John himself says, Behold, what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So we know John the Baptist was present at Jesus' baptism, right? And if we did more research, we'd get even more information. But so... In this book, there's one, at least that is one point that I see that is definitely out of order as far as consecutive order, chronological order, I should say. But the consecutive simply means orderly fashion, something that makes sense. So what he's trying to do is give you a record in a concise way. By the way, how concise has he been? How has the record compared to other, like for instance, when we looked at the Lord's Prayer this week, how does it compare to Matthew's Lord's Prayer? Low, I'm sorry, Lois, say it again. Yeah. But you are getting the same thing, but, but Matthew does what to it? Adds a lot more. I mean, there's much more detail in Matthew's record of that than there is in of, of the one that we have here. So um, for one thing, Jesus did teach this Lord's Prayer apparently on more than one occasion. It was something that he taught on a regular basis, which I think is also very insightful. When you compare some of the things he's talking to different people groups, but basically saying this same prayer. But what we know then is when Luke records it, he's concise. So he is using what we call an economy of words. It's very much like what we see in the book of Revelation, where an economy of words is used. In Revelation, they use a lot of symbolic things pictures so they're able to say a whole lot by one little thing like the word like a dragon well like a dragon says this much right but it's only two or three little words so that he uses an economy of words and that's what Luke seems to do he he has brought it down to these are the facts now how does that relate to what we just looked at in one to four who was who was it that he was writing to to, to most excellent Theophilus. So who is most excellent Theophilus? I mean, what do you know about that title, basically? 
somebody who holds some kind of an office, right? He seems to have some kind of a um, a, 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 um, a political role or a or maybe not a religious role, but a but a governmental role possibly or a legal role. Some people have even said maybe Theophilus was a lawyer potentially, right? And in the days of the early writings when this would have been written would be in those days when people like Paul were going to court, right? So the potential is there that maybe even the reason he wrote a consecutive, very concise, ordered kind of account is because it needed to be some kind of documents that they would use to prove or give credibility or give um, uh, like a, a witness, basically a statement of witness. Now, when he did in, when he did compile this, who is it that he gets his information from? Because was was Luke himself an eyewitness? No. Who was? All the eyewitnesses he interviews, and so what's very interesting is therefore when we back up in the very beginning of Luke, we see. Uh, the, the first account that's given to us, which is unique to Luke, is the um, conception of, of uh, both John the Baptist and Jesus and both of their births. Those are unique to this gospel alone. The others do not hold that part of the information. They jump right from the birth of Jesus and move forward. They don't do the pre-stuff, right? Um, um, now I've forgotten what I was going to say. <laughs> Out the head, one in or not the other. It'll come back later. Anyway, so what we know is that this is a book that because it's written in this very consecutive order with really concise amount of wording, what we know then is he is only giving us as much information as he thinks makes his point. Yeah, let that one roll around for a second because that's really important for you to kind of grab hold of. Is there more information he could have given? Yes. But he chooses only that which will make his point. So what does that tell you about how important it is for us to understand what his point is? Right? Therefore, knowing that he's writing to proclaim to you that Jesus is the Christ, he is the son of man, which is the most repeated phrase he's using in here, is super important. What do we now know, because I've gone through this a couple times with you, what do we now know about the title Son of Man? What does all that convey to us? Who is the Son of Man and why, and why is that title, the Son, and the fact that the Son has come significant in this book? Or why would it be significant in any, in any event? He is the Messiah. Now, what, so what does that title, the Son, mean? How, what, what do you take it back to historically? What are some of the backgrounds on this that the, that the Jews would know and that the Gentiles are being taught? Okay. All right. I did a list with you on the board, remember, because one of them was the kingdom of God and the other one was about the Son of Man. Who is the Son of Man? Who, when was the Son of Man first promised to humanity? In the Garden of Eden. If you, I want you guys to nail those two things together. Son of man, Garden of Eden. Son of man, Garden of Eden. Don't let those two separate because when was the first promise of a son of man given to man? In the Garden of Eden. To Eve when he says, and that son of man, what would that son of man come and do? 
one thing would be to crush the head of Satan. And we went through a litany of things, and we talked about all the things that were basically destroyed or, or um, uh, became defective, basically, because of man's sin, man's rebellion. We talked about that, first of all, that Satan, the spiritual warfare, began right there in the garden. Did we look at spiritual warfare, warfare this week? Oh, yeah, we have a whole segment here that we're going to cover on spiritual warfare. Therefore, through this whole book, the Son of Man is portrayed to us in these very concise, consecutive, ordered accounts. It's given to us pictures of who the Son of Man is and what it is that he came to do, and is he doing it? So basically, he's giving evidence that this Son of Man is doing exactly what was prophesied he would come to do. Right? Are we adding one and one together at this point? And I can still see kind of some dazes, but it's the more often I repeat this, the more you're gonna it'll fi- it'll finally click. For some of you, you got it the first time, and you're wondering why I keep repeating because sometimes there are sometimes people don't get it the first time. They think they do, but they really don't. And then when I come back and ask the question again, they they're still kind of looking at me like, "What do you mean?" So I'm just going to keep saying it through the whole study. We've got several we- more weeks yet to go, but eventually you're going to catch on and start putting these pieces together. The Son of Man is the seed that was promised to Adam and Eve in the garden. The Son of Man is the Messiah, the Christ, who was promised to all Israel, right? The Son of Man, when he comes, he, he's also tied to David, as you had said earlier, uh, Terry, you mentioned da- King, King David and those prophetic utterances that were given that, that, that when the Messiah came, he would be the king. Well, Matthew mostly covers that, that he came to be the king, but so does Luke in, in slight ways. Not so much from the perspective of being the fulfillment of being the king, but from the fu- from the concept that he came through the bloodline of the David, which which va- validates he is that king, that one that was promised. But that he is the son of man, man flesh of the flesh of humanity. And boy, does that tie into so many. I always think of Hebrews, you know, that he can understand our infirmities because he came in flesh. And so we can go to him as our great high priest. We can enter boldly into the throne room of God. And he is our intercessor on our behalf as the man of flesh, which is who we're studying him to be right now. Okay, yes. Okay, we'll talk about the light. No, but it says in the Genesis 26, then God said, let us make man in our image. I was just wondering, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the... I just wanted to know if that... Jesus and God are talking, and then they're going to say, "Don't you know what man?" When you mean when that uses the plural "we," yeah, that's speaking of the triune God—Father, Son, and Holy Spirit—which you see in also in Genesis one one in the creation that you see the presence of the the triune God. Yes, which is really cool. It's one of the things that. Um, uh, we still kind of struggle with when we're presenting the gospel to people, but that's a great one that shows that, th- that there's a, a quality of distinctive roles within the, tr- the headship of God. Can we totally really grasp the understanding of it? No. But Jesus, John talks about it. You know, I and the Father are one, right? Um, okay. All right, that's an, I'm going to stop there because we can go on, but it's going to get too much. All right, so that kind of sets us up. Now, last week, though, I did do a timeline for you. And what I showed you then was we start out in the gospel, uh, the gospel of Luke. 
the first four chapters show that those beginning things that are not in the other Gospels, right? But then what did I also show you on the timeline? What happens next before you hit chapter, uh, is it the end of four? Yeah, chapter four, verse 14. How much time has lapsed be between 413 and 414? A whole year. One whole year of of. As far as if you go back to the Gospels and kind of lay things out side by side to see where you are progressively in the events, we know the event of chapter 4, verse 14, falls at the beginning of his third year of ministry. That, that sec, that, or uh, the beginning of his second year, sorry, of ministry. That one year right there, I colored mine in pink, if you want to look up here. This pink section here just shows you a gap in time that is not covered in Luke. In any of the records that he gives us, he doesn't really give us any information about signs, wonders, miracles, ministry, work, anything that's really recorded in that first year. So what does that tell you? If what you see on this time, okay, follow me along with this. If you see right here is the first, basically, up to the day of his baptism, right? So that's like really at the beginning. And then boom, you jump. You sit, you go from here to here in just almost a nanosecond. And then you're going to spend a very large amount of time down here, you know, as far as the number of chapters that are delegated for us, right? What does that tell you just visually by looking at that timeline about the author's purpose? Where is his emphasis lying in this? His birth and his death. How does that tie into him being the son of man? There you go. Good job, Janice. You know what? It's so simple that people think, I can't be right. Because, <laughs> like, that's too easy. But you know what? No, it isn't too easy. Now, he does give us some information in the middle, which, again, is progressive, and it begins to unfold or, uh, or reveal to us some of the things that he did. And each of the things that he does select to put within here, a lot of these are very concise and very compacted, which is why we have so much to cover today in just one chapter. He just hits them like this, right? And it's, it's almost like, could you not have just had chapter 11 right here? That would have been so much better for me <laughs> as a teacher because I could cover it so much more thoroughly if that's all we had to cover. But no, they cram into one chapter four subjects, and all of them are big subjects, right? But this timeline, if you don't have it handy, keep pulling it out and moving it forward in your book with you because this helps you understand that he is showing him son of man, okay? Birth and death. The physical man comes, the physical man dies, and then what? He doesn't stay dead, right? He resurrects. All right. Okay, so that, in a, in a nutshell, is our context. Again, one more time, a contextual review. All right, so let's stop with that. Now let's move into, so now you know where we're at in this picture. We know what we're doing. We're looking at, at Jesus, the Son of Man, the, that he came in flesh, and, and we're looking at him from the perspective of how does he fulfill those things which he came to do. So in the garden, if I, I should pull out my notes. Let me see if I can find it real quick. Um, in the garden, that's not it. It's got to be back one more. 
Hold on, I'll tell you where it is once I see it. Yes, here it is. I think this is it. Yes, okay, so this is in lesson five of your homework. This is where I took you in to look at who is the expected one. Remember, that's another key phrase that keeps coming up in this book, that he is the expected one, right? Why was he expected? Because he was the promised seed. Who was the promised seed? The one that was promised back in Genesis chapter 3. And the one that was re-promised again through Abraham, right? Your, your son will come. He will be, um, through him I will bless all nations of the earth, right? So forth. Okay, so when he says he, he, he was the expected one, in the garden, besides the spiritual warfare which took place before, between man and, and um, the devil, what else was attacked and broken for us in that moment of sin? What were some of the other things that occurred? What was the consequence for sin? Broken fellowship with God the Father. So the broken fellowship specifically in this book is addressed uh, as speaking about a kingdom, isn't it? About th that, in other words, the king who was the king on the throne in our life, who walked in the garden with Adam and Eve, right, had regular fellowship with him, in the moment that they chose to disobey God's word, that kingdom uh, fellowship that we had with him, that with him as king in, in our hearts and in our lives, was broken. And that's what is also another quality of the Son of Man coming to repair. He's going to repair that brokenness of the kingdom, right? So he's going to, so he will now be king of our hearts, which is why we keep seeing him speak about the kingdom of God has come upon you, or the kingdom of God is at hand. The king, or, and then there's other times, though, he speaks about a different specific in, the, in that relationship, which is the kingdom will come. And when we did our prayer today, your kingdom come, thy will be done. What kingdom is that speaking of? Is that the kingdom of our heart in this moment in, in, a, in, in a repaired relationship with God as our, as our father and as our king? No. What kingdom is that one speaking of? The kingdom of earth. So there's two qualities to the, ki the kingdom of God that is, that is uh, mentioned as you go through this book of Luke, you have to parse the, split the hairs on it. You have to decide each time you look at it, is he speaking about the kingdom of Jesus in my heart or is he speaking about the kingdom of Jesus coming to rule and reign on the earth? Because both are true. Both occurred through the man, son of man, the sea coming. But he came to repair what man broke in the garden, which was Jesus as king or God as king right? All right, so that's one thing. So the, the separation from God was number, was one. There was the spiritual darkness, which is the spiritual warfare. Um, then there were two other things which are really obvious. What is Jesus doing over and over and over in this book? Healing the sick, cast, you know, re, uh, diseases and illnesses of all kinds. So because of man's sin, sickness and, and death also, death is the other one. I'll just jump in there for you. But sickness and death also. So he came to do four things. Sin's penalty was sickness and death, spiritual darkness, physical and spiritual death, and separation from God. Those are the four things that were the consequence of sin in the garden, 
And those four things are always being addressed over and over in the book of Luke. How Jesus is coming and he's showing himself to do the repair work, right? To, to ransom back, to bring back us into that fellowship and relationship with God that we had in the garden. That God wants us to, to yet have with him. Following? Okay, so those four points are what you're looking at again here today. We're looking at how is Jesus showing himself to be the son of man who was promised as the seed to come to repair the damage we did. Make sense? Okay, now we're done. Let's go home. <laughs> really? We're, I mean, that, that's basically it. Uh, now we can go in and look at the details on it, but now you know what it is that you're looking at. Again, you're looking at how he's repairing the damage that we did. Okay, and he's going to tell us how that can happen. Aren't you excited about that? Rebecca was telling me that she was listening to a radio. Go, go ahead and tell your story. She said, it was talking about Martha and Mary, and she said, oh, I know that story. I know that one. <laughs> it's exciting when that happens, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so now let's start in Luke 11, and let's begin. Let's look at our first segment division. Our very Now, she asked you to go through and do what actually I like to do. She, she said, let's break this down by segments rather than by titling each paragraph because then it becomes too disjointed, right? So she actually did exactly what I would have had you do in class anyway, which is the result of what you see up here on the board, is these segments that you should have found. So what did, where do the segments begin and end for this first section on instructions on prayer? You all saw that that was about prayer, right? N easy peasy to see, all about instruction about prayers. What verses do, are we going to be looking at here? One through, one through 13, yes? Okay, don't be too scared. Even if it's wrong, I'll, I'll write what's correct up there and then we'll <laughs> pretend you said it right. Okay, <laughs> it'll be fine. Okay, so your key, now here's one thing I like to do. I put up here in chapter 11, verse three, and I kind of did this at the top of all of my segments here. Your key subject in this, in this area is prayer, right? So that just kind of starts you out with, with a beginning point so that you're, what you're looking at is in verses 1 through 13, the major subject in there has something to do with prayer in each one of the paragraphs that you look at that fall under verses 1 through 13. We know that, that 1 through, was it uh, 1 through 4 is the first paragraph if you were just doing paragraphs, right? So what do you see in verses 1 through 4? The Lord's Prayer. We call it that. Did anybody look at uh, or read anything that says that that title actually should be slightly altered? Whose prayer really should it be? 
the disciples' prayer. <laughs> there is a prayer that's the Lord's Prayer in the Gospel of John where Jesus is praying to the Father and he's praying on our behalf and, and praying for our protection and that you know, the Spirit would come, that we would not be overcome by evil and all these different things. That's the Lord's Prayer. That really is the Lord's Prayer. We call this the Lord's Prayer, but why do we call it the Lord's Prayer? Because he taught it to us. So he, and, and as I said earlier, as it turns out, he actually taught this quite often. Which, when you looked at the subject of prayer on the whole, at the, you know, at the end of your lesson, that one segment, she asked you to go in and say, what did we learn from Jesus' examples about prayer? You, had, you were supposed to go back, I don't know if you did, but you were supposed to go back all through chapter 1 through 11 and look everywhere you see Jesus uh, uh, and the subject of prayer with Jesus and, and tell, tell, uh, make a list for yourself. What do you learn about Jesus and his relationship to prayer? So we'll, we'll cover that one in a couple of minutes. So have that one handy if you want to pull that one out because we're going to look at that at the end of this. But verses 1 through 4 then is titled the Lord's Prayer. And in that, what do we learn? What's the first thing that you learn about prayer? Who? Who, what, why, when, where, how, who? You and I pray, but pray to who? Our Father. Pray to your Father. Now, how profound is that? Is, I mean, you and I could just stop right there, but I don't know about you guys, but I did a bunch of research on this thing about the Father and calling him Father. Where did that come from, that Jesus threw that out for us to call him father. I read that it was it's the way that we have been learning to talk to God from the beginning as the father. Oh really? You read that? I did in my Bible Okay. <laughs> Let me just tell you something. I think your Bible commentary was wrong on that particular point, just so you know that. Because the truth is, they never called him father. Well, that's what I heard Sunday. Okay, thank you. Okay, good, Kathleen. So now, which is it, right? Well, yeah, I had to do some, some real digging on that. But I'm really glad you actually said it that way, though, because this is the, the interesting thing about inductive work. It's a process of figuring it out. Why is it significant or profound that Jesus would say to his disciples, pray, our father? Now, what does the title father mean to you and I? What does it just mean in general if you refer to somebody as a father? That, that's right, that you are his child. So what does that do or how, how does that change the concept of Yahweh, which they wouldn't pronounce, they wouldn't even write all the letters of it, rather than seeing him as uh, the uh, most... Um, uh, God Most High, or uh, Adonai, or Elohim, or, I mean, all those Old Testament terms that they called him, but you, they, he left all that behind, and he says, here, call him Father. <coughs> there you go. It's about the personal relationship, and he takes the, and he actually uses the intimacy of the, of the father-son relationship, and he imposes that into your time of prayer with, with God in the, from that point forward. Who else calls him father when he prayed to him? Jesus. 
Jesus himself, so this is really cool, you guys. What Jesus did was he gave you and I permission to refer to God the Father in the same way that he does. Now that does, I know that that little opening thing to say our Father does not seem like it's super significant, but it is really a huge change. Let me read to you what um, R.C. Sproul says on this subject, because it'll go along with what Kathleen just said, where she got two different stories on this thing. R.C. Sproul says this, a few years ago, a German scholar was doing research in the New Testament literature and discovered that in the entire history of Judaism, in all existing books of the Old Testament and all existing books of extra-biblical Jewish uh, writings, dating from the beginning of Judaism until the 10th century AD in Italy, there is not a single reference of a Jewish person addressing God directly in the first person as Father. Not a single, so that, that blew me away, and, you know, I thought, wow, that is profound. So that kind of takes this pray our Father, and it takes it to a whole different place for me emotionally and spiritually and also in understanding where the Son of Man came as the seed to restore what? that fellowship with the Father, where we walk with him. Remember, he, in the garden, God would come and walk with them in the garden, and they would see him face to face, and they would have a real, oh, I know, makes me smile too, Glenn. <laughs> I just go, oh, I can't wait for the day, although it, it's a little bit terrifying on one hand, but on the <laughs> other, really? But on the, because of the holiness of God, and I think that you will really feel or sense your own inferior position, but yet on the other hand, the idea, you know, the pictures, the pictures of, of Jesus with the little children, and they're sitting on his lap, right, and they're touching his face, and he's hugging them, and I just, that is the relationship that this introduces to us. When you pray, pray our Father. Awesome. It's so awesome. We are his children. Romans 8 uh, I, I've got a couple of verses. There's one in Romans 8 and also in Galatians 4 that, that you can go and look at on your own later, but that talk again about how we have now been given the privilege of calling him Abba, Father. All right? Because we're his children. All right. Now, then the next part of the prayer is hallowed be. Oop, I, I did a by your name. Be your name. I got to fix that. Okay, hallowed be your name. Now, what has Luke taught us about the name of God? This one kind of popped up to me. Go back to Luke 1, 49 real quickly. Let's see what Luke tells us about his name. I only gave you one verse because I know our time is short and I don't want to spend hours and hours, but this one was really quite concise. So it is right at the beginning. So it's a good review. Go back to Luke 1, 49. And holy is his name. So hallowed be your name. What is it? Holy is his name. Luke 1, 49. And so when you look at other things like John 14, 14, does anybody happen to know that one by, by memory, by chance? Where about 
It's a prayer one. When you go to the Father in prayer, what does he say? If you ask in my name, what? It will be given to you. Now, wait, now wait a minute. That's interesting. That, we could spend hours just on that right there, looking at what does the name of God mean? And when you're asking in his name, what are the ramifications? Tell me just off the cuff what you think. What are the ramifications of actually applying that quality? If you ask anything in my name, so his name is holy, what else? What else do you know about God? He's a healer. He's Okay, he's all-powerful, so nothing is too difficult for God. So you can ask anything, right? Not only is he holy, he's righteous and he's just, correct? And merciful. So if he's righteous and just, now wait a minute, so if he's righteous and just, when I say, God, get him. (laughs) I mean, do it righteously, but get him, right? Right? Am I asking in his name? Eh, probably not. <laughs> I mean, more than likely, my perspective could be a little off, right? But can you see how you can develop this? You could spend a lot of time just meditating on this quality of, if you ask in his name, how would asking in his name change the way that you pray or the way that I pray? Should it be able to change it? Yeah, if you ask for anything in my name, and then if if there's another one that says according to my will, right? So it it has to be according to the will of God. It has to be according to the character of God. It has to be according to the plan of God. I mean, all those things have to be brought into perspective. First of all, right there it eliminated my new car. (laughs) Darn. So although I'm not saying that you can't ask God for things if they're need, if you need a car, and I needed a nice hot red car, (laughs) but if you need a car, um, it's not that you can't ask for God for some of those trivial things. I'm not trying to demean the, you know, or limit what you can go to the Father with because we're going to see that here in just a few minutes where you can be really brazen in, your, in the presence of asking God. But it is important that first and foremost you line your mind up so that you're understanding who it is that you're approaching and how it is that you are to approach and what it is that he's, what he means when he says, ask in my name. So if you're doing things in his name. Yes, okay. Well, is there a distinction between God the Father and Jesus when you're praying? Is uh, oh, oh, those are good questions, Kathy. You guys tell me, what do you think? What is the distinction between God the Father and Jesus as far as attributes, qualities, and plan? And the Spirit. Okay, are there any differences between the, the holiness of Jesus and the holiness of God and the holiness of the Holy Spirit? Is there any distinction? Is there any distinction in the plan of God, the plan of Jesus, or the plan of the Holy Spirit? No. Why? Because they're one. 
which we talked about a little bit earlier. So it really, although we know that there are distinct offices that each of those personages of the Holy Spirit hold, they have a distinct role that they fulfill, a quality of who God is that they fulfill. And Jesus himself came to fulfill a specific need, which was what? The redemption, the salvation of men to redeem us back from what we lost and bring back into relationship us to the Father. But when it comes to praying, you can substitute Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they're, they're, because they are one, it doesn't matter. So anywhere in Scripture, even if it's Jesus speaking or whether it's God speaking, it, it is one and the same. Okay? So he says, Ask in my name and it shall be given. Okay, and that was John 14, 14. Okay, I'm going to stop at that unless you have any other points that you want to bring up on that. Do you have any other thoughts on that? Did you do any other additional research on that? I, I'm going to show you something that I did, just, be, just so you can kind of broaden your thoughts a little bit. It, and it's just my typical way of handling these kinds of things. But it's helpful to me, and for those who are trying to learn processes, just organizing your thoughts is part of helping you get to an answer, okay? So what I did is I made a, a graph with my Word document and my chart thing, two sections. The first part here is the, the Lord's Prayer itself, the four points that he brings up in this prayer, the major points, right? And then to the left, I put up my insights or my applications about what does that mean. So over here, I said, Father, and then I put over here, Jesus invites us to use the same intimate title to address God, which he himself used, Father. And then we have privilege to call him Father, and I gave myself a couple of references that show that we have been given the privilege because we've been adopted as his children, Right. We are called children of God. And therefore, that's where the relationship of, of him being our father is. So I put that over here. So then I went to the next part where, uh, uh, about the subject of the father, and it's be hallowed be your name, which is what we just looked at. Now we're going to do your kingdom come. All three of these things have to do with the subject of the father, right? His name being holy. His kingdom is to come, and we can call him Father. All th three of those points, although there's distinctive points, they have varying in insights for us to look at. As an inductive student, you want to draw out as much as you can, break it down as minute as you can, and so that once you break it down, and really what you end up doing is growing it this big, right? Then once you grow it this big, and you look at the information on the whole, you can take that information and then go back to your little tiny points, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and, you, and it has just grown exponentially in your brain of, of what you see in that text. Okay, so the step, the process is, is a little bit daunting sometimes, but the end result is you have better understanding. Right? Yes? Okay, one student says yes. <laughs> I am successful. <laughs> okay, so this is how I did it. it, just to show you what I did in that homework assignment for myself to help me take this prayer and try to make some, otherwise it kind of gets to be a jumbled up mess on your page, and, and it just doesn't have as much, 
it's the conciseness of, of, for me of list making that helps me really categorize things so that I can break it down and eat it like an elephant, one bite at a time, right? Yes, exactly. Actually, what I also I did that on here was I put an additional little thing caption at at my three segments because there's basically three segments to this prayer. The first one is about God. God is to be approached as a loving father would be honored, respected, and submitted to. That's pretty cool, huh? Yes, he's your father, and there's intimacy, and you can come to him and sit on his lap and smile and be cute, right? But on the other hand, hallowed be his name. He is holy. You better approach him as holy. It's one of the reasons in Leviticus where we learned Israel was taught about the holiness of God, how holy he is and how not holy they were through all the system that was given to them. You mu they were, were given regimental orders of do it this and do this and do this and discern the clean from the unclean. The purpose of that was to teach them the holiness of God and where man stands in relationship to God in that. Um, so the, the, that part of him being honored and respected and then submitted to, that takes us to the next part, which is what? Your kingdom come. Can you see how we could actually spend the entire le lesson just on, in this one section on prayer? Okay, your kingdom come. This, this is all found in verses, all of this is in 11.2. Okay. So when it comes to your kingdom come, um, what is he actually saying there? We talked about it earlier. What kingdom is he talking about? This, this specifically, he's speaking about the, the second coming. Jesus' first coming is there. He's in it. <laughs> and, he's, and he's praying about the next one. <laughs> he himself is praying about the next one, which is interesting, right? Um, so Jesus came in his first coming. There's lots of verses on this, but I remember there's one verse that says he did not come to, um, is it to judge to, or to condemn, but he came to save man basically that's his first coming but in his second coming he comes to do what to judge and to rule and to reign so there's there's two comings and in this one he says your kingdom come now that word come did anybody look at the word come in the as far as the the um the literary um emphasis of it like it's a verb, it's a, you know, that kind of part of it. Did you all look at that at all? Okay, well, it, all I got, all I was able to come up with, it's an active verb. Now, what that means is, it is because it's an active verb, thy kingdom come, is that it's not a potential come. That the, because of the, the active quality of that verb, he's li literally saying, um, it will. It's an emphatic, it will come. I thought that was pretty cool. Your kingdom come. And the inference is, your kingdom will come, right? 
Um, and the and the other tra- the other record of it is goes on to say what your kingdom come what your will be done on earth as it is in heaven which we don't have that part of the the prayer here but he c- what's interesting to me is all Luke wanted to do was hone it in narrow it down make it as concise as possible and he focused in on the fact that he he was going to come again and he said and therefore when he says your kingdom come, how does that impress upon you the sovereignty of God in this? Or does it impress that on, me, on you? So regarding that, if you're praying to God and he says your kingdom come and it's emphatically a statement your, your kingdom will come, what are you saying when you pray your kingdom come? Nodding your head. What are you doing as at, in your prayer time before the Lord? Okay, and keep going. Good. You are acknowledging that that He is, yeah. And so you're being in agreement with Him on that, right? It's like, okay, God, it is coming, so I'm going to get on board with you right? Not, I'm going to change your mind about this, but rather I'm going to be in agreement with you. God, you have a plan, and I as your child am praying, Father, right? Our Father, hallowed be your name because you're holy, because you're righteous, because you're just, uh, because you're, you are omnipotent, omniscient, all those things. Because of that, he says, and also, your kingdom come, and I'm going to be in agreement with you and all that. You are that holy God that is also my tender, loving Father. Awesome, right? I mean, it's, it's just really builds itself up. It's not a potential coming. So he recognizes that the, the kingdom will definitely come. I want to give you a verse, and you can look it up later. 1 Corinthians 15 24 to 26 talks, and it gives a very nice little concise account of the fact that this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, and it unfolds that for you in in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, Okay, Uh, in prayer then we are to do what? What must we come to God for? Just in this much of it, how, how are we to approach God then? There you go. There you go. Exactly. All those things. On bended knee, in a, in a recognition of his power, his sovereignty, of who he is. But also, although we tremble before him because of our recognition of who we are, but, but yet also, I think this first part is so important for most people who have a fear of God. What is, what is the opening? Our Father. That he is not to be feared as in he's not retaliatory toward you any longer. Why not? Right. There is no wrath that's going to come upon you as a believer. Because the blood of Jesus has cleansed you. It justified you. It has, it has brought you back into right relationship with God because of what Jesus did and your simple bowing your knee to that. By your acknowledging him, you have, you have put the relationship back in his proper order. How was it broken and when was it broken? In Genesis 3 in the garden. When they refused to acknowledge the word of God, acknowledge the sovereignty of God, they listened to the temptations of Satan, and they, and they literally bowed their knee to him. 
And so now this is restoring it. And this prayer actually even acknowledges that. Your kingdom come in bowing on in order basically to have a, in prayer you must have an attitude of submission to and delight in God's will and his plan. Pretty cool, huh? I love it. Um, in order to ask accurately of the will of God, what do you think you and I have to know? If we're going to pray for his will, what do we have to know? Well, you have to know his word. This is why doing inductive Bible study is so absolutely vital for every single believer. This room should be packed to the brims. We should have to, to tear a hole in the ceiling to lower down people on paralyzed beds. I mean, really, this room should be packed with Christians who want to know God's word better. Because if you are going to go and ask of anything of the Father, you must know the Father. You must know the will of the Father. You must know the plan of the Father. How are you going to get on board with him in prayer if you don't know those things? How are you going to get on board with God to serve him in ministry if you don't know his will, know his plan, know his agenda? Or if you don't know even his character and how he goes about doing things. Sometimes our thoughts are not his thoughts. Boy, have I heard that one before. Your thoughts are higher than my thoughts, right? Because we have this narrow perspective of the world and, and um, how we think God should accomplish things. Sometimes he allows bad things to happen. Sometimes he allows Satan to sift, right? For an end goal, which is holiness for us in our lives and to bring us and draw us closer into right relationship with him. Okay, so that's the beginning of the prayer. Now I'm going to uh, go into the next part, which, what is our next key subject? It's in 11.3. Yes. Our next uh, subject is the word needs, right? Or ask. Ask for those needs. Uh, and he says, give us... Give us our daily bread. Now, what does that mean? What would you learn? I'm sure you studied that out a little bit, right? Did anybody look up the word daily so that they kind of understood what that was talking about? I, I read in some of the commentaries all kinds of different concepts of what this asking for the daily needs. What, do you, what did you find? Those essentials, those qualities are those things which um, pertain to necessities, right? Okay. The bread of our necessities, the bread that suffices for each day, our daily sustenance. It's also possible to understand it as meaning necessary for existence. So in that case, you're talking about things like food and shelter. Remember, there's a one in Matthew that says, um, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you in as well. And he's talking about uh, the food and the bread and the, and the um, protection of a uh, home or whatever. But he says it can mean necessary for existence or that which is needed for each day. In other words, each day is the emphasis possibly that you're praying, Lord, provide today what I need for today. You know, I, there's another verse that talks about that. Do you know what it is? 
You have enough problems for today, right? Yeah. Tomorrow will take care of itself. The concept there is not that you don't ever plan for the future or that your case are all so raw about it, but that you understand that the daily needs are what are going to be met for you by the Father in this, in the way that He's designed this prayer for us to understand. Yes, it would. Yes, it became wormy, <laughs> right? And so if they gathered too much manna in, it, out in the wilderness, they couldn't do it. So he wouldn't even allow them. Why do you think he did that? So that every single day they would remember to rely on God tomorrow for tomorrow's need. The, the whole visual learning in that whole thing, that exercise of futility with those, that, those st stiff-necked, stubborn Israelites in the wilderness was to teach them that God would provide for them daily and that they could count on that, okay? Um, you can apply. Now, here's something. That's for the physical part, but is there another quality to this, these daily needs, and ask for your daily bread? Now, daily bread is that which is necessary for life. Besides physical things, what else is necessary? The spiritual quality. So it can mean either sides, just so you know that. You're, when you say, our Father, give us this day our daily bread, it's not just talking about physical bread for the physical body. It could be speaking about spiritual bread for the spiritual soul. Yes, there are plenty of them. So you can see, again, this just this one little segment of this prayer, you can cross-reference into a lot of additional scriptures that, get, that are going to bring in so many more points that you could really... This, this particular prayer could itself just be a whole week of study. So in this segment here, we're going to move on from it already, but uh, um, this segment right here, the key subject was about our needs. What do we need? After God is praised, then you go and ask God about your needs. And it's, it's a little different from the pattern of acts, A-C-T-S, adoration, you know. That is just a pattern, right? I actually see, when I look at that word acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication, right? A-C-T-S, everybody's learned that one. I see when you go into the Psalms, they almost flip it upside down. They start at the, at the end and work, and work their way down. They start out with a lot of complaining and woe is me, and then eventually they get down to praising God. <laughs> and how many of us actually pray that way? <laughs> I, you know, oh yeah, by the way, God, I am so sorry, you know. It, I, I confess that often I jump into prayer, and immediately it's like, God, please help me, help me, help me, help me, and I'm at the end, or, or I'm complaining about all the issues that are going on in life, but it's like the longer you spend in prayer, the more your mind is drawn toward him. The softer your heart becomes, and that Psalm 90 that talks about, until I entered into the sanctuary of God, and then I saw their device. Before that, I was a brute beast before you, Lord. But, but when I realized the, the world and the problems and all these things that I'm bringing before you, when I realized the end of most of it is just destruction and death, then I understood right? It brings me into a place of holiness, and it lines me up with the will of God. It does, it brings me there just by the act of prayer itself. All right, so that second one is we ask for our needs, and the last one is going to focus on healthy relationships. I don't know if you saw this or not, because it, what is the key subject? 
forgiveness of what? Sin. Key subject? Sin. <laughs> the issue of sin is all in this last segment. He says, first he says, and forgive us our sins, right? Now, I love this one. Who is he speaking to? The disciples. So these are the believers, right? Obviously still Old Testament because Jesus hasn't died and resurrected. And for those of you who have forgotten that, Luke, most of Luke is Old Testament operating under the law still, okay? But they're, they're uh, going to God, to God, he says, forgive us our sins. These, he's, it's the disciples that are praying, and, it, and for all purposes that we need to understand, these are believers. So believers are the ones who are to say, ask for forgiveness. So what kind of forgiveness is this not talking about, therefore? If it's, yeah, repentance for the purpose of salvation. This is not the prayer of repentance into salvation. This is the prayer of a believer about his daily sins. Because you're coming to the, to the Lord daily, right? As you saw before, just in, give us each day our daily bread. If it's spiritual needs, it's spiritual bread, spiritual truth, spiritual manna from God. And he says, and now forgive us our sins, us believers our sins. So where I want to take you to is, is 1 John chapter 1 verse 9. This book in 1 John, the whole book is written so that you may know that you have eternal life. It's in a book of written for assurance of your salvation. So the, the book is written to believers. And he says in there in chapter 1 verse 9 what? Does somebody have that handy by chance? 1 John 1, 9, because you know this verse when you look it up. Mm. Thank you, go ahead. Say it, that, can you remember it by, if you can remember it, just quote it. If we confess our sins, yes. There you go, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, when you do word studies on that, cleansing us from all unrighteousness, that is not the same word as you get in other places where it's talking about baptism, which brings you into, which is a sign of what God did by the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This washing is actually a splashing. I did not know that until I studied it one time. But by definition, instead of it being an immersion, which is what salvation does, right? You are immersed and the Holy Spirit then comes in and, and indwells you. And by that, then you are justified, right? Brought into right relationship with God. That's that kind of washing. This one, he says he will wash you clean. It's speaking of a splashing. It's a daily splashing. It's like a feet washing. Like Jesus watching the feet of, the, of his disciples. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. So believers are to ask for daily washing. It's a splashing. That's First John 1, 9. That's what this is talking about. This one is talking about four believers. Uh, sin is a barrier that comes between us and God and us and others, right? So this is not a prayer for the forgiveness of sins that leads to salvation. It's an acknowledgement that believers are sinners. Did you catch that? You know, I, I'm, not, I'm not perfect, but I'm forgiven. I ha used to have a little plaque like that that was in my bathroom for a long time. I, I need to find another one of those. I'm not perfect, but I am forgiven. And that is, in essence, what's being st stated right here. It's simply an acknowledgment that believers, although we are justified and saved and washed clean and made 
right and justified, right? But still, daily, what do we need? We need that sanctification through prayer of asking God. First of all, you need to simply acknowledge that you still sin. And therefore, you're still in need of asking for forgiveness on a daily basis. Okay? And why is that important? He says here in the next part, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Right? Um, what is he talking about that? Basically, he's saying that you, you need to do what? Be forgiving, right? Forgive others. Uh, it's part of our responsibility, by the way, in, as a co- in covenant, right? To keep and be at peace, if at all possible, with your fellow uh, believer. Pray not only to be kept from outward sin, but also its temptation. This is the next part. Lead us not into temptation, right? What ha- how does sin begin according to what you and I know about it? Do you just wake up one morning and immediately you sin? Oh, I know. Um, there's one in James. We like James. Go, go ahead and look it up. One fourteen and 15. There's also one in Psalm 66, 18, if somebody else wants to look that up. And 1 Peter 4. Verses 1 and 2, and then jump to 7. Who wants that one? Okay, thank you, Brenda. That's the tougher one because it's 4, verses 1 and 2, and then 7. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's, let's go ahead and start with James since I started us there, Su- Susan. What do we see there? But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Wow. Okay, so... In essence, if you had to explain that to someone else, where does sin begin? Does it begin by an action? No, it begins where? In the heart and the mind. The heart and the mind. (laughs) I put them in the wrong place. It's like my jewelry this morning. (laughs) You know, it's my dyslexia. Everything's backwards. Okay, so heart and, so it begins in the heart or it begins in the mind. It begins as a thought process, which is why Jesus talked about, you know, if you've lusted in your heart, you've already sinned, basically, right? Okay, then move on to Psalm 66, 18. Thank you, Lisa. Okay, so if I have cherished in my heart, the Lord would not listen. Now, what does that tell you in relationship to what we're studying here? When he says, uh, we ourselves are uh, also forgive everyone who is indebted to us, we're commanded to do what? To forgive, and then lead us not in temptation. Now, what would the temptation be? To hang on to the hurt, which, boy, I do. Lisa and I have got lots of interesting conversations going sometimes. (laughs) Right, Lisa? No, I don't know. (laughs) But it's, it's hard because when you've been hurt, it's hard not to hold on to that. And yet God says, you need to forgive as God has forgiven you, right? It's a quality of God's character and who he is that as Christians, we're to portray that to the world, right? Okay, and the good thing often, you know, is I think that most Christians on the whole, we do a pretty good job at least externally, but <laughs> still in the heart. Well, I do think that's a part of 
Well, yeah, I know. Okay, we're going to get there. We're, you're right. So there's that part, too. That's even, that's worse. That has to do with unbelief, right? But I think at least if you learn to, uh, James talks about it, about um, learning to navigate or, or control the ship, control the tongue. You learn first by controlling external and then God will work toward the internal on you as a Christian. That's, you have to understand that's a process for all of us. It's not just you. It's not just me. It's everyone. And, and it's daily. And it's a struggle your whole life. And you never get beyond the work. You know, God is constantly refining us. And so if you're struggling in that in any way, if any of this is touching, you know, somewhere in your heart, understand this is the joy of having a study that helps you really dig in and, men and then mentally take an account of your own life. And where am I in this? Am I doing these things? Am I, you know, do I forgive? Am I, am I approaching him as a holy God? Am I understanding he is my father and I'm not to fear him, but that I can simply come in and approach him in as, he's, as he's teaching me here? Pray our father. Um, there was one more, and it was... Uh, Peter, First Peter 4, 1 and 2, and then 7. Okay. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. The end of all things is near, therefore... Be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Wow. For the purpose of prayer, be of sound mind and of sober judgment. So this idea of forgiving and, and not being led into temptation. Now, in other words, constantly going back to the Father so that you keep those things in check because the time is near. What, literally, I could wake up dead tomorrow. Don't weep. <laughs> I'd be so happy. However, that also means you better daily be ready, daily ready to meet your Savior. You know, can we say that? Can we say I'm ready to, to see him? All right, let's move on. We got lots more to cover. All right, so I'm going to stop with that. We did, oh, I didn't get it even written up there, but you know what it says, so I'll, I'll assume you've got it. You're going to get my chart in the mail, so you'll get all of it on the board afterwards. Okay, um, um, you should forgive us our sins as we forgive him who's and leave us not into, okay, then, so then the end of it was, her last part about prayer was she wanted you to analyze what you observed about Jesus in his prayer life through the book of Luke and tell me what you learned about him. Just throw out some thoughts. Tell me what you saw. He often went alone. So what does that tell you and I? Go, off alone. Go, go often alone. You know, one of the things that you see in contrast is often the Pharisees would do it publicly and make a big statement of it. Sometimes there are people who don't pray except publicly. You, you know, you can tell just by their life, right, that they're not in, spending any time in prayer. Um, okay, so that's one thing. Go, go privately often and... Sometimes you pray that, boy, that's like me doing homework through the night. I mean, but I can't imagine being in prayer through the whole night. That's just an amazing thought. Although, you know, that's true. Yeah. 
There have been times in, I'll bet you there have been times in all of your lives where emergencies are going on, really dire things, and you do pray through the night. And maybe you doze off for a second, you wake up, and then you keep on praying again because something is so pressing on you. Jesus had these same kinds of things where he was really uh, um, felt a need to just keep calling on God and calling on God, right? What else did you learn? Okay, well, we're going to move on from there then. Um, he prayed often in all circumstances of life. He removed himself to be alone with God. He prayed publicly sometimes, um, but a lot of it was private. He kept in constant fellowship with God, relying on him for strength, for wisdom, for protection, for leadership in his ministry, for guidance in who to pick and, ha and how to go and when to go, right? And then the other one, I love it, and you probably missed it. He taught others to pray. So those are examples for us to follow. Yes, that's it. He led by example, and he taught others to pray. Okay, let's move to the next section. This is about the people's responses. Now, let's just start with a simple list on this. We see in the opening, and starting in verse 14, a new segment comes up. What do you see this segment to be? I called it spiritual warfare, but you may have called it something else. What did you call it? Nobody has a different title? You all came up with the same title I did? Or you didn't title one or the other? Okay, very good. You know what? But that's saying the same thing, just you're saying he, ca he cast a demon out, right? That is the literal, um, and which is what I like to do too, that is the literal way you title a a paragraph, you look to see literally what does it say. When you are working with historical accounts, generally it's people, places, and events that you're looking at, right? With w In this kind of literary form. We know that identifying our literary form in doing inductive Bible study is super important. So once you know you're in the literary form of historical record, you're looking at people, places, and events, and generally those are what your titles will be. This event happened, or this person is discussed, right? Or this place was... It's significant. So it's people, places, and events. So Susan titled it Jesus Casting Out Demons. Perfect logic, Susan. Okay. And so w when he was casting out demons, right, goes on, talks about him being mute. The demon had gone out, and the mute man smoked, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them, some of them said what? Now, there are going to be some, th there are three responses, and we want to get all three of them up here. Because it leads to the rest of the flow of thought in this entire segment division, okay? Responses of the people. Okay, so this first part is about the disciples. This is about the people. The first response is what? What were the crowds? The crowds were amazed. All right. What's the second response? Some were accusing. Some accused Jesus, basically, of doing what? Yeah. 
being in league with this this entity called Beelzebub. Um, and then the third one is, what did the other group do? They tested. They tested Jesus. And what did they demand? That's right, demanding signs. Right? Demanding signs. They accused Jesus about Beelzebub. And how should I try to put that on there? B-E-E-L-Z-E-B-U-L. Beelzebub. Okay. And, the, and so that's verses 14, 15, and 16. Now, this is called list making. And this is a simple list. So, Lisa, for, for you, because you're learning this method, this is one of the things that you're going to do regularly when you're doing observations. You're going to look for things that are called simple lists with, that are right within the text. You don't even have to really look for them. It's kind of like um, where it says, and the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. But, you, know, you just go, the, love, the fruit of the Spirit is, you'd underline that, and then you'd go one, two, three, four, five, six, each of those points that are brought out about what the fruit is. In this case, it's the responses of the people. And what did they do? Some were amazed, some were accusatory, and some were demanding signs. And that's a simple list. Now, once that simple list is, is laid out for you, often that will give you a clue, possibly, and you have to kind of be watching for it, which include me in that, is he going to address these different responses? Because do, have you noticed that that often happens? He'll state what the people's responses is, and then it'll show how Jesus deals with it. And so that's what we're going to be seeing here. Now, the crowds were amazed does not get uh, on the whole covered specifically, but what does he jump right into? What is, what is your keyword verse 14 through 26? What, key, what is the major subject in there? Demons. It's the spiritual realm. So he handles which one of those three um, points up there? Number two. So you're going to start right here with number two, Jesus' answer. Okay. That, that's how I titled my next section, Jesus replies or Jesus answers, however you wanted to say that. You're going to see this in verses 14 through 36. Now, first thing he does is he, t he talks about basically about their thoughts, right? He knew what they were thinking. Okay, and I like, I make, when I see the word thought, I make a little light bulb. And I sometimes use that for the word wisdom or ideas or anything along those lines. But thought when he, the, about their thoughts. So uh, concerning their thoughts, what were their thoughts? What, how does Jesus reply to their thoughts? How, what does he tell them about Satan? There you go. How ridiculous. Are you guys totally that illogical that you think that the way kingdom, the kingdom of Satan is being built up is by him casting out his own demons? That's like removing your own people from the field, right? I mean, that does not make sense. So he's really saying to them, your thoughts are illogical. And then he's explaining to them how it's illogical. It's illogical to think that sat Satan would be divided against himself. Satan... I'm going to put it on here, will not 
be divided against himself. So their thoughts are illogical. Now that's an, a- that's an analytical conclusion I drew. It doesn't say that word in there, but he's saying it by what he's, how he's presenting the information here. So in verse 18, he says, if Satan is divided against himself, how will his kingdom uh, uh, stand? Okay, so that's the first one. And so then he goes on and gives them a fact. What is the fact that he gives them in verse 21 and 22? What is taught there? Okay, there's a contrast between a strong man and a weak man. And he's talking about a strong man who defends his home if he's strong, right? But what happens if someone stronger comes along? He get, he's overpowered, right? So he literally is saying here, basically, this is, a fa- this is just a fact. I'm laying down a fact because I'm going to go on and build on this in a minute. I want you to understand, fact number one, um, fact number one, the stronger, uh, the stronger will overpower the weaker. And we know that's a truth. I mean, that's just like a that's, a, that's a pragmatic truth about life in general. The stronger will overpower. So the fact that Jesus has cast out a demon in the opening of this, what does that tell you? Uh-huh. <laughs> Jesus cast out a demon. What verse was that? 11 what? 14, thank you. 11:14. Okay. So, and that proves that he is the stronger, correct? So he's setting himself up. He states a fact, the stronger is going to overpower the weaker. The the next fact then that he shows them is about Jesus what? Concerning demons in the spiritual realm, who is the stronger? Jesus. So the, he casts out a demon, therefore he is stronger. He is the stronger. Right? It kind of makes sense, the flow of thought. Now, I thought about 1 Peter 5.8. What does it say in 1 Peter 5.8? About the lion. I think it's about a lion, right? Yes. Yes, the lion seeks. He pro- have you got it there for me? eight for me. Can you read it all the way? Very good. Now, if you know this, if you know that, therefore, in the spiritual realm, that that um, 
there are evil spirits, as we see presented in the opening of this, where Jesus is having to cast one out of a man. If you know that there is in the spiritual realm spiritual uh, angels or demons who are seeking those whom they may devour, they're out purposely, deliberately. Jesus goes on to talk about that once one is cast out and he finds no rest, no place, what will he do? He returns back, right? So we know that evil seeks to devour, to devour us. And I'm going to put that on here, 1 Peter 5.8. Now, she, she didn't give us these things, but i I just pulling them in because I think they show you the 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 flow of his thought, what he's thinking. It's kind of like he's expecting you behind the scene to kind of understand and grasp some of these points, right? Now, what if, what if, he, as he goes next, he says, let me see, how am I going to do this? I'm jumping way ahead of myself in 24 to 26. Let me, let me just hold off for a second. Let's just do this. This is 21 and 22, right? Now we're going to go to 23. So what is the next fact that he says? Yeah, if you are not with me, you are against me. So what does that tell you? What does that tell you, you and I? Uh, the, the spiritual principle about how the world operates is what? There is no middle ground. You are either in one camp or the other, correct? Isn't that interesting? So he lays out these facts. Their thoughts illogical. Fact number one, the stronger will overpower the weaker. Fact one, he's just laying it down. Now, fact two, if you are not with me, you are against me. You have to decide whose court you're in, correct? Who, who, which, which one do you want to be in? Think about what it says, um, it, well... Let me see if it's up here, though. Yeah, it's going to come up. I want to wait on that one. Let's think about this one in, um, I think about this one. Joshua 24, 15. I'm going to take you to an Old Testament one. 24, 15. It's an Old Testament statement, but the principle applies in the new just as well as in the old. What does he say there? Okay, so he is literally in the Old Testament making this same statement. You are either serving the spiritual realm of darkness or you are, spirit, you are serving the house of God, right? The, the kingdom of God. So it's either the kingdom of Satan or the kingdom of God. You're serving one or the other. And Joshua says to Israel at that time in history, choose who you are going to serve. And this, I think, is kind of where he's saying, he says, look, if you are not with me, you are against me. So choose, the inference then is to go to the next thought process. Well, then choose this day whom you will serve. Will you serve God or will you serve Satan, right? We didn't uh, define it, but Beelzebul, when you did a word study on that, what did you learn? Who is Beelzebul? 
It is. And as a fact, if you didn't get it from a word study, what does 11.15 say? And then what does 11.18 uh, say? 15 and 11 give you a definition of who he's talking about when he speaks about Beelzebul. It's the ruler of the demons, and he is in 118. He calls him what? Satan. <laughs> so he identifies it right within the text. You could have gotten your list right from within the text, but if you didn't do that, you could do a word study and you come up with the same answer. Beelzebul is simply speaking of that he is, is uh, uh, what is it? representative of who Satan is. He's just a picture of it. All right? So either you are with me or you are against me. Um, I have some other ones, but we'll keep going. Now, there's another fact. He gives another statement here. Now we have fact number three, right? It was number two. Now we're at number three. And we're going to look here. What does you see going on in three? Tw verse 24 to 26. Oh, exactly. So the point is, he's saying the stronger will overpower the weaker. And he's then saying, you have to choose who you're going to serve, who's going to be the one that's going to be in charge of your house. And your house symbolically is, a, is speaking about what? Us, the, the body, right? And so then he says, that fact number three, demons can return. To those who, ha who remain weak. But who can they not return to? Do you have a verse on that one? Can you think of one? He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. See, you guys did that so well. Very nice. Good memory. <laughs> okay, so 1 John, 4, uh, uh, 1 John 4, 4 tells us that he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world if I'm a believer. And what that tells me is how do I, the weak vessel who, who has the vulnerability to have spiritual or demonic oppression, oppression upon me, or even in the case of this, we don't, I don't think we give enough credit to it, but demonic possession is a fact of life. And I think it's all over in our nation today, and we call them mentally ill, we call them all kinds of things. Uh, some of them are just disturbed, right? They're angry people, or they're addictive people. Sometimes they're mute, according to this, but sometimes they're aggressive. Sometimes they rip their clothing off and jump into fires, right? We've seen it. So there are all these pictorial things that we are learning about mental, what we call today mental illness that really is demonic. And what he is saying is if you do not have God, the fact is that wh whoever the stronger is will overpower the weaker. Now you tell me from, even though we've not studied it, what do you know about demonic powers? Are they stronger than human beings? Oh, yeah. Whenever Daniel or, or John, for instance, in the Revelation uh, and also in uh, the book of Daniel, when they had a visitor from a, an angelic being, although they were good ones, thankfully, but yet what happened? How did they respond to those angelic? Yeah, they fainted down. They trembled. They were in terror. Why? Because angelic beings are powerful. 
So here's the fact. Fact one, the stronger will overpower the weaker. Fact two, if you are not with me, you are against me. And fact three, if, if, if you are left without Jesus in you, then the demon that's been cast out, you have a chance that he is going to come back, and he'll come back with a vengeance. So, for instance, when Jesus starts this thing by casting out a demon, he is in some ways, he's speaking to this man saying, look, don't just stay there. I can do this miracle for you, but what must you do if you want to ensure that this demon does not come back? You had better believe and be in my kingdom, right? You better be for me, not against me. You better be on my kingdom and not in, the, in Satan's kingdom. Because if you're in Satan's kingdom, Satan's uh, rulers, his, his adversaries, his, or his, his, um, his, his minions, <laughs> they will come and dwell within you and, and torture you and torment you and use you and abuse you, right? So fact number three, demons can return if you remain weak. You're learning a lot about spiritual warfare here. Okay. So that is 24 to 26. Now, 27 and 28 closes this segment out. And what does he say there? And very interesting to me, 27 and 28 is a transitional passage. It can go to what we're talking about here, and it attaches also to the next segment. So Kay had us cut it off at 26, but honestly, 27 and 28 can also uh, fit into this subject. And, And you tell me why. What do you see in 27 and 28? What is Jesus saying? This woman makes a statement, right? She says, blessed is the womb that has borne you, correct? Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But Jesus said, on the contrary. Did anybody look that up? What did you learn, Rebecca? You were nodding your head, yes. On the contrary, what do you think that means? Wow, you did some real analytical stuff. That's good. Okay, that's good. Um, when, G- when Jesus says on the contrary, as an analytical student, you'd want to look that up. Because what I want you to understand is that's a very emphatic contrast statement. It's not just a, mon- a mo- it's an emphatic marker of contrast. More, it's stronger than a but, okay? On the contrary, he is literally saying no, as I have done sometimes. Well, you know, no, not really. It's this, <laughs> right? It's uh, the opposite. And he, you know, I'm sure he did it lovingly and graciously, but he's saying to the woman, because she was demonstrating a measure of faith, yes, that was a positive. So he wasn't just sh- shoving her down and rubbing her face in the mud, right? He was literally saying, but on the contrary, more important than what you're looking at is what? hearing his word and obeying it. So when you look at this flow of thought about their thoughts being illogical about Jesus casting out demons um, by 
um, the power of Beelzebub. He's saying the stronger is going to overpower the weaker. If you're not with me, you are against me. Demons can return to those who remain weak. Now, how do you fix not remaining weak? Yeah, you don't just emotionally make an attachment to Jesus because, of course, in that moment, I think this woman was just, she was in awe of what she was seeing and hearing, and she was feeling an emotional attachment. We didn't get to the last chart. (laughs) We didn't get to the last part, Pharisees and, okay, and a wicked generation. Anyway, (laughs) okay, but we got through through three, I guess. That's pretty good, or two. Two out of four, I guess, is pretty good. All right, but she, she literally is um, rejoicing, basically, in the physical presence of Jesus, and that's not enough because there was more to the story. Here's my question. Think about this one. When Jesus dies, resurrects, would that woman's faith, that, who, what she said about him, that blessed is the womb that bore you, and the breasts that nursed you, is that going to hold her when he is arrested, when he is beaten, when he is crucified? What would happen to her? that kind of faith? It's going to be gone. So what, he, what he's saying is that is not going to be enough. She needs to embrace, embrace the full gospel. That's really what he's saying there. It is not him putting her down or shutting her off or belittling the little bit of faith that's there, what he's really doing is challenging her to expand her, her faith. I kind of felt like back when he was talking about healing my mother and my Yes. Mother, he's deflecting. Yes. That's ex- earthly mother to his he father. is doing that as well. Yes. But in the flow of thought here, he's literally saying you need to embrace the full gospel because how are you going to have the one who is stro- stronger who can protect you from the spiritual realm and the, and the attacks of Satan, how is he going to be the one who is in you, who is greater and stronger than he who is in the world, if you don't embrace the full gospel, if you only take a smidgen of the gospel, which in her case, she was seeing the manifestation of the seed present among her, and she was impressed with it. But that's all she was embracing. bring them to bring it forward and he's saying and he literally said it is really who is blessed is not the one who bore me it's the word of God himself it's God and all his the totality of his message all right I am so sorry we didn't get through it all but we did get through a lot 